Father, we just uh, bow before you this morning, uh, excited that we can be together, excited that we can share uh, together in this baptism this morning, and these four who are professing their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, we thank you for their publicly declaring, publicly identifying with him. And Lord, uh, we also thank you that we can be together to study your word, to be challenged by it, to be encouraged by it. Lord, help us as we study. Thank you for the salvation that you provided through your son Jesus, his willingness to go to the cross, his willingness to bear in his innocent, sinless body, our sin, so that we might have the hope of eternal life by simply putting our trust in him. Not ourselves, not religion, for we'll get a great example of a, of a person who could put faith in themselves, who lived morally and religiously and yet was lost. Thank you, Lord, that all you require is we put our trust in Jesus. The moment we do, we pass from death to life, and you give us eternal life, an abundant life here, and life with you forever. Lord, thank you. We're so grateful to be a part of your family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To understand the impact of what's going on in Acts chapter 10, uh, you have to understand a couple of things. Things are about to change radically. Things are about to change radically. Acts chapter 9 has been preparing us for that. And as we get into Acts chapter 10, through Cornelius and through Peter and through what God does in their lives, how he uses them, the door to the gospel is open to the Gentiles on an equal basis and equal footing with the Jews. That was an astounding thought in that day. That was an astounding thought. In fact, uh, that's why God had to prepare Peter for what was about to happen. Peter would not have visited the home of a Gentile on his own, without some prompting, without some teaching, without some prodding from God, Peter would never have visited Cornelius's home. Well, we'll be introduced to them in just a moment to try to help us to understand the great teacher of the Word of God, Charles Erdman, said this, Peter might have consented to preach to Gentiles, but he would have refused to eat with them or to adopt believing Gentiles into the Christian brotherhood. The gulf between Jew and Gentile was greater than can be imagined today. To the Jew, the Gentile was an abomination. His touch defiled. His customs were abhorrent. His religion was a blasphemy. Something astounding is going to happen. And it's so astounding that the story is told three times in the book of Acts. It's told here in chapter 10. It's told again in chapter 11. It's repeated in chapter 15. This is an astounding event in the life of the church. Another writer explains it this way. 
Here was the church at the turn of the first century facing Jewish rejection of the gospel which should have been theirs. God reached out to the Jew first and they're rejecting the gospel. The writer goes on to say, and Gentile acceptance of a good news that was not addressed to them. Luke wrote in that rather confusing, if not embarrassing period, when the church had to explain to itself how such a state of affairs came to be and why. That's the explanation we're getting here in Acts chapter 10 and 11 and 15. How, did, how were the Gentiles incorporated into the church on an equal footing with the Jews? As I was studying, I was just kind of, you know, let my thinking go, and I thought of it this way. I might say it this way, holy guacamole, Batman. What is going on? The Jews are rejecting their long-awaited Messiah, and the Gentiles are putting their faith in Him. What is going on? Well, in chapter 10, we see how God prepared both Cornelius and God prepared Peter for what was about to happen. Look with me at Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. We're introduced to Cornelius, and we'll learn more about him in verse 2. But what we learn here is that he is in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is about 30-plus miles north of Joppa. That's where Peter was in chapter 9 when uh, he healed Aeneas. and uh, Rather, he was in Lydda when he healed Aeneas. And then he was in Joppa when he raised Dorcas from the dead. And now we, our attention is drawn to Caesarea, about 30 miles or so, north of Joppa. It was the Roman capital of Judea, the seat of the Roman government. It was a beautiful city. It was built by Herod the Great, the Herod we encounter in Matthew chapter 2. We're told that Cornelius was a centurion. So first couple of things we learn about him, he is a Gentile. He doesn't have any Jewish heritage at all. He's not partial Jew as the Samaritans were. He is a full Gentile, and he is about to be incorporated into the church as he puts his faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, Son of God. We're told about him, we're introduced to him, we'll learn more about him in verse 2. We learn here that he was a centurion. Now, the way the uh, Roman army was divided in that day is it began with a legion, which was 6,000 soldiers, and uh, those who know say it would be an equivalent to a division today. And then those 6,000 soldiers were divided into 10 cohorts or regiments which those who know say is equivalent to a battalion today, each with 600 soldiers. And then the next level was the century. 100 
a, a company of 100 men. And that was led by a centurion. Now, centurions, individual centurions, are positively presented in the New Testament. They are generally loyal and generally courageous. In fact, one of the ancient historians said this about centurions. They, centurions are desired not to be ever bold and reckless so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive, not prone to start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and to die at their posts. They are said to be equivalent to captains in our day. Equivalent to captains in our day. He was part of the Italian regiment. That is a, a regiment, 600 soldiers, that would have been recruited from Italy. Interestingly enough, and I love that archaeology confirms the Word of God, archaeology doesn't make the Word of God true. Do you understand that? But archaeology has a confirmatory purpose. And at every point, archaeology confirms biblical teaching. And they have found, archaeologists have found a Latin inscription from 69 A.D., which speaks of, quote, the second Italian cohort of Roman citizens. Many think that these are identical to the Italian regiment that we are reading about here in Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. Well, that's where he is, Caesarea. That's who he is, what he does. Now we're going to learn something about his character. Verse 2, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. He was devout. He was what was known as a God-fearer. A God-fearer. Not a full proselyte, not a full convert to Judaism, but rather somebody who stopped short of full conversion to Judaism. He was generous, we learn. He was prayerful. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. He probably attended synagogue. He probably sought to follow the Old Testament. He found satisfaction in the Old Testament and in Judaism as other Gentiles did that was lacking in the paganism of their day, lacking in pagan mythology, lacking in paganism in their mythology and their empty and often immoral practices. He found nothing to feed his soul there, but he did among the Jews. He did in the Old Testament. He, didn't just, he just didn't go as far as becoming a proselyte, as being circumcised, as being a full convert to Judaism. Someone explained it this way, a few Gentiles became converts to Judaism and accepted all Jewish practices, including circumcision. A larger number stopped short of circumcision, but accepted the Jewish belief in God, synagogue worship, the ethical teachings of the Old Testament, and some of the Jewish religious practices. These people were called God-fearers. 
So we believe that Cornelius was one of these God-fearers. Another writer explains that these God-fearers attached themselves to the spiritual and monotheistic worship in the synagogues without becoming converts to Judaism. A third writer tells us, it seems that we must understand Cornelius to, be having, to have been a Gentile who, having realized the bankruptcy of paganism, sought to worship a monotheistic God, practice a form of prayer, and lead a moral life apart from any necessary association from Judaism. So in other words, he's not a proselyte. He's not a full convert to Judaism, but he finds himself attracted to the God of the Jews. He finds himself attracted to their monotheistic theology. He finds himself attracted to the teaching of the Old Testament. So he was called a God-fearer. What you and I need to understand about him is that he was moral, he was religious, and he was lost. Let me say that again because that is crucial. He was moral, he was religious, and he was lost and going to a Christless eternity. How do we know that? Look at chapter 11 and verse 14. Chapter 11 and verse 14. This is where Cornelius is recounting what happened to him when the angel came to him. And notice what he says in verse 14, or I'll get verse 13 to get the context. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be what? Saved. So what we find out about Cornelius is that he is moral, he is religious, he's a man of prayer, he enjoys the Old Testament, he attached himself to the worship of Israel, and yet he was what? Lost. Lost. See, you can be moral and lost. You can be religious and lost. Why is that? Because Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64.6 tells us that all of our righteousnesses, that is all of the things that you and all the good works that you and I do, are what? Filthy rags before God. We can't make ourselves right for God. We can only accept His provision. And the only provision for sin is His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death on Calvary. And we must put our trust in Jesus Christ. Not ourselves. Not our morality. Not our ethical living. Not the fact that we attend church and therefore we are religious people. Here was a man who was moral, Religious, prayerful, and lost. And lost. Verses 1 to 8 is about this good man. 
who need to be needed to be saved. We know many like that today, and we ought never to be fooled into accepting that they are believers because they live a moral lifestyle or because they go to church. Well, verses 3 to 6, he has a vision. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, by the way, 3 in the afternoon was possibly a reference to the Jewish time of prayer as Cornelius was praying, and maybe he prayed at that particular time because it was the Jewish time of prayer. He had a vision. It was one day about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. Well, I can imagine that, right? (laughs) If all of a sudden you have a vision and there's an angel... Uh, that would be fear-producing. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asks. Now the word translated Lord there, kurios, is most, many times, excuse me, in the New Testament used of God. It's uh, another word for God. Kurios is God. But sometimes it means master or sir. And so that's probably the sense in which he's using it here. What is it, sir? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius is praying. This was no doubt a common practice for him. For he was a religious, moral person. Literally, the angel is a man in shining clothes. A man in shining clothes. Often evidence of an angel. Prayers of, and his gifts to the poor were evidences of Cornelius' devout character. Prayer and gifts to the poor were evidences of Cornelius's devout character. And yet, I can't say it enough, Cornelius is still lost. Is still lost because he hasn't placed his faith yet in Jesus Christ. We'll see that happen in this passage, but he hasn't yet. He's living up. He's a good example of a person who is living up to the light that he has. He's living up to the light that he has. He's living up to the truth that he knows. He's a great example of that. And when somebody lives up to the light that they have, God will give them more light. That's what's happening in our passage. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 10 and 11. When somebody lives up to the light that they have, God will give them more light. Cornelius is a long way down the road, but he's not there yet. He's a long way down the road to salvation, but he's not there yet. It's going to take Peter coming to him. 
But before Peter can come to him, it's going to take changing Peter's mind about Gentiles. And believe me, that is no easy task. We won't get to that today. We'll get to that next week. So Cornelius is getting more light from God. And he's a good example of those who living up to the light they have, God will send more light. Living up to the truth they know, God will send further truth. Ray Steadman said this, The great question, which I am asked more frequently than any other, especially by non-Christians, is what about the man who lives up to the light he has and is faithful to what he knows but has never heard of Jesus Christ? What happens to him? That's a, a question that many ask. That's a question you may have asked before you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a question that you ask now. What about those who have never heard? What about those in the furthest reaches of the earth? What about those who are in Stone Age tribes who still exist today? What about them? How can they be condemned if they've never heard of Jesus Christ? What about them? Cornelius helps us with that. In fact, Stedman goes on to say the story of Cornelius shows us what happens to a man like that. When he is obedient to the light he has, God will take it upon himself to give him more light and lead him to the place where he can come to know Jesus Christ. Cornelius exemplifies that for us. Cornelius exemplifies that for us. When a person is obedient to the light he has, God takes it upon himself to give him more light and lead him to the place where he can come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 10. Now I want to take just a few moments to pursue, to pursue that question. What about people who are completely isolated from Christianity? What about people who are completely isolated from Christianity? How can they respond to Jesus Christ? The answer is this. There are two sources of information about God to which every person, regardless of where they live on earth, regardless of their geographical location, there are two sources of information about God that every person can respond to. They are called natural revelation or general revelation. They consist of two sources of information. The first is nature or creation. The first is nature or creation. Romans chapter 1. If you want, you can turn here or write it down for your own study. Romans chapter 1 tells us about this first source of information about God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, 
All right, do you hear that? What may be known about God is plain to them. So you say, Paul, how is it plain to them? Paul goes on to say, because God has made it plain to them. Paul, how has he made it plain to them? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. You see, what Paul is telling us is anybody anywhere on earth, no matter whether they're in the most advanced, sophisticated city on earth, or they're in a tribal area with people who have never had contact with other people on this earth, no matter where they're at, they can look up and see the universe and know the power of God and know the nature of God. Where did it come from? Why is it here? What, must, what can there be? How great can it be that it is here that somebody made this? Nature is a source of information about God that's available to every person no matter where on earth they are located. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. If you want to write this down or turn here in the book of Psalms to Psalm 9. Excuse me, 19. Psalm 19. It's a favorite psalm of many people. It's a psalm of David, and it says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. In other words, the issues of language and not speaking the language of the locals isn't a matter of concern when you're talking about creation evidencing God, revealing God. All people of all languages, all people, whatever their language or speech, the voice of creation is seen and heard. And later in this passage, we're going to see that it's felt as well. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the earth. The creation is speaking to the people of earth. Natural, general revelation. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Even those who may not be able to see the universe can feel the warmth of the sun. There are two sources of information about God to which every person 
regardless of their geographical location, can respond. What's the second? Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 tells us of the second source of information about God. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This second source of information about God is our conscience. Our conscience. Cornelius is a good example to us. That those who respond to the light that God gives them, God will send more light. And that answers the question, what about people completely isolated from Christianity, how can they respond to Christ? More importantly, how can they be held guilty? It's because God has made him known, himself known. How has he made himself known? Through the universe. Through the conscience. He's made himself known. Well, back in Acts, we see here that God tells Cornelius to send men to Joppa, in verse 5, to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. You see, he's about to get further light. He's about to get further light. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that happened and sent them to Joppa. He sent them to Joppa. Notice that Cornelius responded immediately. With what? Obedience. He responded immediately with obedience. Now, contrast that, and we're not going to get to it today, but next week we will. Contrast that with Peter when the sheet is let down with all kinds of clean and unclean animals, and Peter is told, kill and eat. Peter says, not so, Lord. Now, he's either Lord or he's not. If he's Lord, we don't say no to him. Right? So what is it, Peter? Is he Lord or not? We'll get to that next week. Immediately, Cornelius calls three men. One of them 
apparently also a God-fearer like him, he calls these three and sends them to get Peter. He explained it to them and sent them off to Joppa. Now I want you to also notice something and then we're going to have to kind of bring things to a close. The angel didn't share the gospel. The angel wasn't the one that gave Cornelius further light. The angel was only a messenger from God because God hasn't given it nor permitted angels to be those who share the gospel. He has given that to you and to me. Don't you think at some point, and humanly speaking, anthropomorphically speaking, don't you, don't you think that God must have said to himself, I think I'm going to do this with angels because I can't trust those human beings. It would have been so much easier. But angels would not be the ones to proclaim the gospel. God ordained that you and I would proclaim the gospel to those around us. And I think that sometimes you and I might say to ourselves, I wish God had made angels the messengers of the gospel. Well, we've got some interesting things with Peter, but we'll get to those next week. Let me, let me share a little story with you here. Written by an author in a book called 365 Life Lessons from Bible People. Beneath the surface, there's a revolution going on. You might not see it when you walk through the office or hear it when the swing shift gets onto the assembly line, but it's there. In every walk of life, in every place where people do business, a spiritual revelation a revolution is transforming lives. Cornelius was an early part of it. He did his job, but in a special way, that told everyone he was different. He approached his men with discipline, but also with compassion. He imposed the power of Rome and the Jewish people around him, but with a keen eye toward fairness and reason. In Cornelius and among his family, the revolution was defining a new kind of person, a Christian. Did Cornelius ever become a Roman general? Did his faith help or hurt his career? We do not know. But after he trusted Christ, wherever Cornelius went, he was a witness to the revolution God started back in Genesis. He would never be just another centurion. His life had purpose that transcended rank and battle ribbon. His heart knew joy and peace in a new company of brothers and sisters the church of Jesus Christ. Be like Cornelius. Let God put his revolution in your heart. God's transforming power changes lives. How did Cornelius's life change? We'll get into that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage in scripture which explains to us the momentous change that is about to happen not only to the church but in the life of Cornelius who is about to be 
a recipient of the gospel who is about to put his faith in Jesus Christ and have his life changed forever. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to anyone who will look, look up or look in, and we pray that we might be those who might bring the gospel to them, the further light that they need. In Jesus' name.